back to the Everyday Story Podcast. I'm Ben Armstrong. And I'm Jack Clem. Here today uh, to jump into 2 John. Yes. We have 13 verses. Do you think we can get that in one episode? I, that's our goal, right? <laughs> we want to. It's, uh, it's 200 words, something along that line, and one of the shortest epistles. So, uh, But, you know, one of the shortest epistles has really put us in a little bit of a, st- a tailspin, hasn't it, in terms yeah. of how we sort out all the particulars. Yeah, it's short, but it's not particularly easy. No. And in order to understand it well, to read it well, right. to live well, um, to learn from it, we really have to have a lot of other data in mind mm-hmm. in order to make sense of it. I think overall, as we've talked about it, what we want to do is model a way that you know a reader could just carefully, closely read the scriptures, read it well, uh, with a few things in mind. And um, maybe you don't know all of the the backstory particulars, but you'll be definitely pointed in the right direction. And uh, so we want to try to model that today. We want to model what we've set out to do with regard to the Everyday Story podcast. Because you can really get lost in the weeds in these uh, shorter letters because... you know, you don't have 15 chapters, mm-hmm. hundreds of verses of data to examine. You've got 13 verses. So, trying to determine who's the author, who are the recipients, what's the situation, mm-hmm. what's the teaching that John's trying to combat, mm-hmm. you know, all of that, you get into it and it's just, it can be confusing. It yes. can be difficult. And then at the end of the day, um, you end up like no further than where you started. Right. You end up with like, yeah, we don't really know. Right, right. So we we don't want to focus too much on that. We want to touch on it because mm-hmm. we've um, tried to dive deep into the weeds, uh, so you don't have to. But then we we want to to your point. We want to we want to get to the read well parts because right. there's a lot you can read well. Oh yeah, um, and a lot of content you can glean if we read well. Yeah, and I think we both agree that the epistle is so appropriate for the moment in which we live. So we're excited about what's before us. So let's just jump in. Let's, uh, let's uh, share some of the background information that uh, we need to know in order to read well. So, Ben, what do you think? Who's the author? Oh, well, uh, I think I'm going to go with John, the uh, son of Zebedee. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of helpful things you can glean if you just read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and look for um, what do we know about the author. So, we know that the author from First John 1, 2, he's an eyewitness and he, he heard Jesus speak personally. So he's an eyewitness of Jesus. He's a hearer of Jesus. You know, from First John 1, 5, that he proclaimed the word to these churches. Um, you know, from a bunch of passages in First John and uh, 1 and 2 John, um, that he speaks with authority about, quote unquote, the beginning so he he's someone who speaks with authority. He functions as an elder in the churches, according to Second uh, John one and then Third John one, um, and then you get this this kind of picture across all three letters that um, he has a widespread influence. Um, so so he doesn't even have to like name himself. Like people know, yeah yeah, it's that guy. Like yeah yeah, he has enough influence and authority uh, to speak into this church without specifically having to give all of this background information and a defense of his authorship and why they should listen to him. He kind of carries that influence. So, you know, even if you just read first and second, third John, you start to pick up some pieces um, about who the author is. And then from there, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, um, you know, 
comparisons you can get into between the literary devices, the language, the form between these letters and the gospel of John and, and go from there. But uh, as far as like just reading well, you pick up those pieces about who the author is. Yeah, for sure. He's the, he's the same person who wrote the gospel. So it's the gospel and these three epistles for sure were written by the same person, John. And, uh, you know, to your point, even Gary Burge uh, makes the the point that uh, you know, John was a leading ecclesiastical figure in Asia Minor at the time. And uh, he has a little uh, blurb where he, he cites Irenaeus, who was told by Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, that he was instructed by John. You know, so John was that leading authoritative person. So based upon just reading the text of Scripture closely, carefully, you know, we, we find ourselves falling into a, a very reliable understanding of who the author is. But then from there, it gets a little more complicated. Yes. So uh, what's the form of Second John? Is it a standalone letter? Um, you know, do, is it a part of something bigger? What do, we, what do we think about that? Yeah, and of course, this is where we do get a little bit of help from the... Um, uh, the commentators on this with regard to how to put it all together. But if you think about it, uh, first of all, when you read 1 John, there is no addressee. So 1 John does not have an addressee. 2 John is addressed uh, to, uh, it's from the elder to the chosen lady and her children. Now, who is that? You know, probably the consensus would be that this is probably some local church that John is writing to. 3 John is addressed to Gaius. And of course, which Gaius are we talking about? There's several in the New Testament scriptures. But because 1 John doesn't have an addressee, some have concluded that maybe 2 John is the cover letter that comes first and that introduces 1 John and then is followed by It's like third. 0.5 John. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I could see that. I could see where, you know, perhaps 2 John serves as that cover letter to introduce what's going on, and then John unpacks it a little bit more specifically in the five chapters, and then he addresses Gaius at the end. So, it's not necessarily a tight uh, chronological line between 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as happening in time. Mm -mm. We should be careful right. uh, to not read into that. Like, you go from the end of 1st John right into 2nd John, and, mm -hmm. you know, this is later. Mm -hmm. It could actually be before or at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you need to be careful. Yeah. The, and I think as we, we uncovered in our study that even some may think that 1st John came before or, you know, some of the epistles may have come before the gospel, but I think it's, it's pretty well established that the gospel was drafted first, about 80 to 85 AD. And then with all the false teaching possibilities that are addressed, um, you know, somewhere around the first century, in that time frame, the epistles followed. Um, some of the more developed false teachings or heresies uh, emerged more uh, concretely in the second century. So, so you know, everything that we're reading, gospel, three epistles, first century, you know, in, in terms of that. So now the next question that uh, is a little prickly is um, who are the addressees? You know, who is John writing to? Is it a literal elect lady and mm -hmm. her literal biological children? Mm -hmm. Or is it a church? Right. Where is the church? Mm -hmm. Is it one church? Is it multiple churches? Yeah. What did church look like then? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't address it to a church building. Right. 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 So, yeah. What is that? What does all of that look like? Yeah. Well, I think the consensus, as we already 
I've alluded to is is probably that it's it's John. And the thing that makes the most sense uh, that it's probably John, the elect elder, writing to a local congregation is if you look at verse one in Second John to the elder or the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I but also who know the truth, and then you have. Um, in verse 13, the closing, the children of your chosen sister greet you. So it seems like the way in which the churches were referred to are this, you know, uh, in, in family terminology, um, the elect uh, to the chosen lady, her children, your sister and her children, you know, so that makes most sense that it's most likely being addressed to some... It's a pretty special biological family yeah. you'd have to fight for right. if that's not the church. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. So so I think, again, reading well, looking at verse 1, looking at verse 13, lends credence to what we're suggesting. Okay. Um, where, where were they? Do we have any idea, like, geographically uh, where these churches are at? Um, I know there's a lot of speculation, a lot of back and forth. If you read three commentaries, you're probably going to get three different opinions on it. But, right. Um, do you have any? Yeah. The, uh, the churches are probably um, located in that uh, Asia Minor area, uh, probably, you know, what's today known as Turkey, you know, in that particular region. And, um, you know, the, the, the readers seem to be a diverse group of Jews and Gentiles, you know, really moving in two different or into new worlds. Uh, the Jews with an Old Testament background are moving into a Greek world. Uh, the Greeks without an Old Testament background are moving into a Jewish world. And so their distinctive w- worlds are really being held together by their faith in Christ. And so, um, uh, you know, so probably in this area of Asia Minor, you know, what's to no- today known as Turkey and a diverse group, Jews and Gentiles, you know, kind of moving in and out of different worlds and uh, coming together, held together by their common faith in Christ. Hmm. So those are kind of some of the the stuff maybe that, that's a little harder to come to if you're just reading 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, but then actually getting to like the issues at hand in 2nd John, there are a couple of big things we wanted to deal with. One is the false teaching, the nature of the heresy. Um, you, you get a, a good, robust Christology in this letter. And then you have this emphasis on like living ethically off of that and what that means practically in the area of hospitality. So we want to deal with that issue at the end. Um, so as far as like the false teaching, again, um, there's lots of different opinions about what that is. Um, what are some of the things that you researched? Yeah. Well, you know, basically the three options that get discussed, uh, would be number one, this is Gnosticism that John is confronting and it's really a belief anchored in dualism, the dichotomy between matter and evil, matter and spirit. You know, matter is evil, spirit is good. And of course, um, John 1.14 affirms that the coming of Christ in the flesh would really be the the verse that the Gnostics would, would really wrestle with. You know, how could something good like God take on something evil like flesh? So that would be Gnosticism to some degree. Uh, docetism is another branch of, of Gnosticism. And it asks, you know, how can a spirit being Christ or the Son of God, good by definition, become flesh? And, uh, you know, the answer that the docet, docet, 
Docetist. However you say the people who believe in docetism. Yeah, that's right. There we go. Sorry about that. But the, you know, the spirit being assumes, or it seems like uh, that the good God is assuming the matter, which is evil. So, whereas the Gnostics might say they did, you know, they're actually standing against that and arguing against the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the docetists are saying, well, it just seems like that's what Jesus did. And then there's this heresy of Serinthus, and he believed that the man Jesus is um, severed from the divine Christ or from the Spirit. The Spirit came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and then left him to suffer alone on the cross. So, you know, I it's really, you know, when you read all of these different views, it can be rather baffling and, and almost dispiriting. But, um, uh, you know, I think what uh, I've appreciated is a comment that I came across by Gary Burge, where he just says, you know, we just need to be careful about reconstructing all of what was possible or probable, because we, you know, we don't always have firsthand information about what John is saying about his opponents. So, but but I think, again, coming back to our our purpose in the podcast, reading well, you did you undertook a, a pretty good exercise of just, okay, let me just read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and see if I can understand what the heresy is. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you came up with there? Yeah, so one of the commentators I read um, clued me into to thinking through, okay, like John uses this form of argumentation where he says, if we claim that and then he provides a little summary of something that people claim and he gives the conclusion, we have this or are this or whatever. So, you know, one of the pieces is to look through what are people claiming? So he says in first John, right? Like if we claim to have fellowship with God, but we say whatever, then we actually live in darkness. He goes on to say, if we claim to be without sin, then we make God a liar. If we claim to know God, but we don't obey God, you know, that's that's not what we've taught you. So you, you get little pieces where you know, there are people, you know, hypothetically, John is saying, if we claim and this happens and this happens. So you kind of get a, a clue, like maybe there are people in the church who are claiming this or who are going around teaching that they have fellowship with God, that they don't have sin that they know God, but their lives don't actually live in obedience. And, and you maybe get a little piece there. And then first John uh, two, you get, you get this other piece that um, the people who are propagating this false teaching were one time members of the church and they left on their own um, for doctrinal reasons. And they're now trying to lead current church members astray with mm-hmm. false teaching. They went out from us because they were not actually of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's this internal threat. Right. They're, you know, they they were and, and again if you're meeting in a house church and you know you're of some of the first people to believe and then one of those people leaves and starts teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Right. Like that would that wouldn't just be like you know, a best-selling author that you're reading their book. I mean, this is one of your, maybe a really close friend of yours. So, you know, this false teaching is going to have some some personal like appeals and draws. Um, there's relationships at stake, possibly. There's history. There's, you know, there's, there's like, we used to go to church together. And I want to tell you something that I actually believe now. And, you know, and they would go on and explain this false teaching. Um, 
So I think be, you can really trace perhaps some of what the false teaching is by those, if someone claims or if we claim, you can kind of get a piece to like, oh, okay, maybe maybe there are people who are claiming that. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. And you get John's, you know, condemnation of that. Right. <laughs> if rather you claim strong. to have fellowship with yeah, God. Rather strong too. You live in darkness. Yeah. If you claim to be without sin, you're making God a liar. If you claim to know God, but don't obey God, you don't actually know God. Um, if you deny that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, you don't have the son. Like really strong correction of of the content of this false teaching. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so you know what we're seeing is that there's this intimate connection between doctrine and life practice. And that comes out strongly through the three epistles. And so uh, when and it really comes to the Christological, to the theology of Christ, that uh, if we're wrong, uh, Fred Sanders, I I have this quote uh, that I often use whenever teaching Christology or involved in doctoral um, classes, it's that idea of um, if you're wrong about Christ, you're wrong about everything. (laughs) And uh, so I think that's really the spirit of what John is saying in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. If you're wrong about Christ, you're wrong about everything. You're wrong. Uh, you don't have God. And so he's rather strong, rather, uh, you know, um, you know, forceful, forceful. Yeah. yeah there's the word that, uh, you know, this cannot be held. You can't, you can't have this doctrinal commitment and then expect that there's going to be a life of godliness that will complement it. Hmm. So you see in second John in particular, you, you notice that, that John defends both the humanity of Jesus by saying, you know, we need to confess that Jesus came in the flesh. There are those who who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver in the Antichrist, right? So, mm-hmm. like, you get John's clear mm-hmm. pushback, like, no, Jesus came in the flesh. And then a few verses later, he says, you know, if you deny uh, that, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, like, you don't have the Father or the Son. So, you get, like, a defense of the deity of Jesus and... And that, like, we need to we need to remember, you can't reduce Jesus to either human or God. He's both, and and so you have this Christology that is kind of corrective, and it, it's uh, to maintain what they've already heard and what they've already learned. Um, and so he's he's kind of like reaffirming and reasserting what the true narrative or the true story of Jesus is. He's reminding them, uh, like, Jesus is equal, fully human, fully. God and don't don't listen to people who are going to remove one or the other because right. if you do you don't you don't have God right at all yeah and the text is very clear in that uh, you know there there is the the they're devoid of a relationship with God they're devoid of any kind of uh, accurate knowledge about God and so um, you see that uh, very strongly come out particularly in verses seven through eleven where that uh, emphasis is is strongly made there. And this is maybe where, uh, you know, practically we can start to to see some some stuff that we can live well today, which is, you know, before we can correct or push back on false doctrine, we need to know what is right doctrine. We need to study, we need to read it, we need to learn it, we need to know it, we need to be able to explain it in our own words, we need to be able to take people to the text and say, this is the truth. This is what we've heard from the beginning. This is what we've been handed. This is what we know to absolutely be true down deep in our bones. There's no negotiation on this. And that just takes work. Um, if, if we, if we just view the gospel, the story of Jesus as something, um, that I accepted, you know, years ago, so I can be saved and I don't ever need to come back to it. I don't ever need to think about it. I don't ever need to 
you know, word it my own way in my own words. I don't need to be comfortable defending it. Um, we're going to be prone uh, to being uh, taken away by mm-hmm. false teaching because we're not being reminded of what the truth is. Right. We're not so, thinking it. We're not so, owning it ourselves. Right. So, in a sense, we've we're we're trying to be very historic in our commitment to the apostolic doctrine. We're trying to be very historic with regard to all right, this is what Jesus taught. And this is the truth about Jesus that uh, we need to steward well. I think that was a a comment that uh, you had made earlier. And then also this idea, we want to hand it off well to the next generation. So when, you know, how do we live well in this particular moment? So we're reading the text well, carefully, slowly, closely. And uh, what we're doing is we're, we're guarding this trust. We're making sure that it's handed off in a proper, accurate way. Uh, we're letting it work in our lives. We're, you know, we're remaining in it, as John uses the word abide rather uh, frequently. Uh, in He uses it more in the gospel, but he uses it uh, uh, in a significant number of ways in verses 1 to 3. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Uh, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ and from the Son of the Father in truth and love. And so that idea of, of it abiding in us, bearing fruit from us, and, um, and then, of course, we're seeing its power, and uh, we're, from that vantage point, able to discern what is truth, what is error. Because, you know, as we've used the story... Uh, paradigm to to really explain the Bible. And as we've talked about the different acts of the story, some people will take that paradigm and go a step further and say, um, the the story, the, the part of the story that we're living in uh, is one that that's still characterized by new revelation. And, and so, you know, we're living today creatively with imagination and it's authoritative and it's corrective and it, it can go back and overturn previous parts of the story. And, and we want to say like, no, um, we live with imagination today as responsible actors of the story, but we are not tasked at all to create new truth or to change truth that's already been revealed. Um, if someone changes the story of the Bible in the name of like living responsibly today, uh, or, you know, I'm holding to the truth that's been revealed today. Um, then I think the letter of second John helps us in that like we're not creating anything new. We're testifying to something that's already been handed down to us. We want to steward that well, and we want to hand it off with all of its preserved integrity to the next generation. Now we live that out today in our culture um, with creativity, imagination, um, but we're not creating new truth or altering truth. And we want to really know the story of Jesus, the story of the Bible really well. So we don't end up changing it. I mean, it's a, it's a heavy thing to change the story of Jesus and hand it off to someone else. Um, I think that's a, that's a big deal. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and John's words should be a warning to us yeah. to not do that. And, and part of being a responsible actor in the story is knowing our identity. And uh, <clears throat> John does a great job in the opening, these first couple of verses that I read just a minute ago. Uh, but, you know, he refers to them in a rather unique way, a couple of, uh, I think, defining statements that help understand our identity. Uh, you know, he calls the 
the the elect lady or the chosen lady as you know you are an elect community specifically the chosen lady reminding the church that they are under the lordship of the one who loved them the one that they belong to um, he also talks about them um, embodying the truth you know in second in, uh, John 1 in I love you you or I love in truth. I truly love you. Also, all who know the truth. Uh, verse two again, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us. And as I mentioned, that abide emphasis in the gospel, and again repeated here, uh, recalls and echoes back to that statement of abide in me, my word abides in you. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who makes that connection of truth with us. And then also uh, you see that uh, the church, this group that John is writing to, the identity of these people is they are the recipients of God's love and affection, grace, mercy, peace, with, from, in. I love the prepositions that are used there in verse 3. Um, you know, Grace, mercy, peace, the three prepositions, with, from, and in. Grace being God's unmerited favor, you know, God giving us what we don't deserve, mercy, God's compassion, you know, withholding from us what we do deserve, peace, that wholeness, that well-being in all of life, and all of this flowing out of God's grace for us. So, and then finally in verse 4, they're living out the truth. Um, as you see there in verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Hmm. So, so that's our identity. You know, we're, we're, we're chosen, we are recipients of God's grace, mercy, and peace, we're embodying the truth, we're living out the truth. And so then it's very natural for John to flow into now in verses 7 through 11, this strong warning that um, you know we can't mishandle the truth, we can't entertain anyone who is representing false teaching, that's dangerous. These are people who are anti-Christ, anti-truth, they're without God. Uh, their lives are going to be so contrary to your life, and uh, you know, really, um, it's dangerous to to entertain them in, in in a significant way. Yeah. So let's jump into that because that's probably yeah. what Second John is most known for. Yes. Is verses ten and eleven, which say, "If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." So I think. This verse uh, has been used um, for all sorts of positions, anywhere from, you know, uh, don't, don't even answer the door if a Jehovah's Witness is on your front porch. Don't let him come into your house if he asks, if you're in the middle of conversation, he can only stand on your porch or outside. Don't let him in your house um, to, you know, the church is only for Christians. Uh, you know, we don't, the, the church doesn't entertain people who don't hold to Christian teaching. They're not even allowed to like be in the gathering. Um, you know, there's all, you get all, you can get all kinds of different applications from these verses. And what we want to do is we want to read them well. We want to understand, okay, like what's, are there cultural particularities that should inform how we read this? So is, uh, hospitality in our day today in 2021, the same as it was 
for these readers? And if not, what's, what are some of the differences that we should have in mind? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously some things are the same, you know, just providing food, shelter, you know, place of refuge for a traveler along the way. And of course the church was expected. That was, that was really a distinctive that Jesus had in his ministry that we would show hospitality. It's rather interesting, even first Timothy three, that uh, those that desire to be an offer, a uh, uh, an overseer should um, be characterized by a hospitable kind of a spirit. So it's it's a little bit jarring when you come to Second John and you say, okay, no hospitality. Right, but the scripture I, contradicting itself. Yeah, but not really because you know, there's another issue at stake here, which is that when you invite someone into your home, you're using your social status to leverage them you know, or to allow them to elevate them, to elevate yeah. them, yeah, uh, to the same social status, and so there's like this this agreement. There's this partnership that when you bring somebody in, as John is imagining it, envisioning here, um, is going to be you're going to be identified with this person in a significant way. So um, you know, there are indeed a lot of opportunities for hospitality in the then world as well as in the current day in which we live. But uh, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a different issue at stake here, which is th- there's an agenda that these people bring uh, with them as they enter, you know, is it your home or is it the church? It might be a both and there because the church did meet in homes, but uh, the text doesn't say your home. The text doesn't say the home. It just says home or house. So, uh, you know, it's leveraging your social status to elevate the standing or the opportunity or the ministry of this false teacher who's coming with doctrine that's gone beyond the doctrine of Christ. And I think, you know, this is nothing new for Christianity. I mean, Jesus himself um, utilized this kind of hospitality in spreading the news of the kingdom in Matthew 10, verses 11 through 14. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, right, he sends out the 12 apostles and he says, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return it to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So, you know, there's, I think, two, you know, modes of transportation kind of enter this too, right? Like they're not hopping on a train, they're not hopping on a, a plane to fly across country. Um, this kind of hospitality is a, a pillar of ancient culture, and it, it really included a whole lot more. Uh, it included a, a place to stay and, and a meal, but it included more than that, Um and I think, you know, to your point, if this is where the church is gathering, you know, if you are inviting a, a false teacher into your house to stay with you, and then you're having, you know, quote unquote, church service there, you're meeting to, to worship Christ together, and you give him a place of teaching, uh, that's a problem. And that's going to potentially lead you astray or lead other people who believe in Jesus astray. And in that sense, you are entering into the false teacher's wicked works. Um, so this isn't, this isn't talking about, you know, you're coming home from work or walking in or whatever, and you see someone who needs a place to stay for the night. Mm-hmm. That's different mm-hmm. than a teacher who makes his living, perhaps mm-hmm. traveling from town to town, uh, 
going to places like your house where he will have influence enough to teach other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's different. There's, right. there's some differences there. Or, you know, perhaps the host is not discerning, doesn't uh, feel confident in the, the doctrine of Christ, and maybe some things sound very similar, but uh, are not uh, sorted out and uh, accurately discerned in terms of what is truth and what is what is actually false and uh, not to be promoted. And uh, then that status, that situation of the host is used to fund, you know, to, um, to promote that particular false teacher. And then as a result of that, there's this participation, really, at Quinonia, there's this participation in their, their evil deeds. So it's not that you can't have your unbelieving family members, your extended family in your home. Um, you know, it's not that you perhaps couldn't have a Jehovah Witness um, come and you discuss with them, maybe either you know, on your porch, or even if you brought them into your table and you sat with them and you you showed them the truth, as opposed to the error that they're promoting, uh, you know, I don't I don't think there's limitations on something of that nature. But it has to be done wisely, carefully, um, discernment with lots of yeah. discernment. Yeah, and, um, and and you know, just really being confident that you can, you know enter into a conversation in a healthy way with uh, someone who is bearing a contrary doctrine. Because you know what the true doctrine is. Right, right, exactly. That comes up again. So maybe like an analogy to this would be, you know, I'm having, you know, someone's having a small group meet in their home and a Jehovah's Witness knocks on the door. And you say, hey, come on in. Um, actually, you know, we, we were just meeting together to have our weekly time of studying the word and we're learning about Jesus right now. Why don't you come in and tell the whole group what you think about Jesus? And that person goes on to, to spread a false doctrine about who Jesus is. And maybe there's a couple people in that group who are not mature believers and they're actually led astray and they actually believe that guy because you gave him an opportunity because they were all meeting at your house because you were seen as a leader. You gave that person a position of teaching. They ended up actually leading people astray. Mm-hmm. You are partly responsible for that. Right. I mean, right. That, would that kind of be maybe? Yeah, that's a great illustration. And I, I don't think this rules out debate and dialogue. For sure. Now, yeah. you know, in that small group setting, if the host didn't, you know, say, well, okay, that's what you believe, and that's part of your tradition that goes back to, you know, uh, you know point back to church history where all of that emerged. But uh, um, if they don't do that, then I think that's where the danger is. But if they do that, that's a little bit more debate and dialogue kind of uh, a format that's totally different than what I think John has in mind here. This is, this is welcoming in. This is um, a willingness to share resources. This is a affirming, uh, affirming you know, kind of a thing. And John's saying, don't do that. Don't share your resources. Don't uh, share your status. Don't affirm them. Don't give them, don't give them lodging uh, to promote them in any way, shape, or form. Don't enable them right. to continue to, to teach false things. Um, so I think I was helped by an illustration um, by Simon uh, Kistemacher in his commentary. He said, let me explain by using an illustration. A Navy commander who had access to military secrets sold them to the enemy. He was apprehended and subsequently sentenced. Reporters interviewed the man's father and asked him for his reaction. The father replied that his son, whom he loved, had betrayed his country and now had to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. 
the father in this case separated himself from his son and regarded him as a fellow citizen who had transgressed the law. So he says, John points to a person who no longer continues in the teaching of Christ, who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and who wishes to enter the homes of Christians for the purpose of destroying their faith. This person has betrayed Jesus Christ and is now purposefully anti-Christian. Although John affirms that Christians should love one another, he warns against allowing the false teacher to lead these believers away from Christ and to hand them over to the evil one. So, you know, it's not just like hospitality on like a a friendly level. I mean, there's more to it than this. And it's really important that we understand those particulars or else we can end up in some really weird places with these commands. They don't contradict other commands. This is consistent with the commands that we are to know, the truth that we have received, and we're to defend that well, and we're to guard the truth from people who would subvert it, who would replace different pieces of the story of Jesus. And and we're to be hospitable to unbelievers, we're to welcome them, we're to engage them, um, but we're in no way, shape or form to encourage them to teach Christians the true story of Jesus. Right. Because they, they, they don't hold to the true story of Jesus. Right, so. exactly. No, it's, yeah, well said. Yeah, I, so I think uh, what John is really emphasizing is a very strong Christology, and that runs across the gospel and all three of these letters. And he's making this intimate connection between a commitment to a strong Christology that results in or eventuates in a healthy, godly life, walking in truth, bearing and manifesting all of the fruits that come from truth. Very similar to what Paul does, I think, in the pastoral epistles, where he makes the equation of sound doctrine leads to godliness, false doctrine leads to ungodliness. And so we can't get away from this connection between truth and practice. And so when we abide in the truth, so what's really at stake here for us? Is it just a matter of us being good Pharisees that we can, you know, defend the truth or we're, you know, or, or we're just good knowledge sort of bases, uh, people that, you know, we really know all of the facts, but, but it's more than that. It's that we know this truth well, and this truth has transformed us into truth bearers, truth abiders, truth um, fruit bearers, and so, I, I think that's where the weightiness of Second John comes in. What, what, do you feel that way? Or? Yeah, I think uh, Karen Jobs talks about how in our culture, we've kind of separated truth from love. We, we, we think of truth as like purely mental and love as like emotional. And she argues that, that here, like John doesn't do that. He ties them so closely together, uh, even with faith, like truth, love, faith, truth and love though, you, you can't divorce them. You can't really even separate them. Um, to know the truth is to, to love in action and to, to love in action is to, to be do what accords with the truth. And so there isn't really a category for John where he's saying like, you mentally assent to the truth, but you just don't live that way. He's like, no, to, to be living this way is to be preaching something about what you believe. And so we want to hold truth uh, in our minds and we want to actually live it out in our, in our days. And so we want to read well, we want to believe the truth and then we want to live it well. And if we don't live it well, it's not really any use to believe it because John says you don't really even have it. Right. 
Right. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's kind of an interesting contrast if you think about uh, what I was sharing uh, from the identity of the church in verses one through three, through three. I included verse four in that as well. And then you come over to the section that we're working out of in seven through eleven, and the identity of the false teacher is is rather stark. You know, they they don't have God. And in, in the way in which that's laid in the text is is rather emphatic. And uh, they're antichrist. They are deceivers. They are uh, people to be avoided. We can you, you can see that what attends them or what follows them is evil deeds. So it's kind of like John is like holding up the identity of the church being you know, what it is by virtue of the work of Christ as well, and then contrasting it with the the identity of these false teachers. This is who they are, and uh, you you can't, it's, it's back to John's uh, light-darkness sort of dualism. There, there's darkness with these people, these deceivers, this antichrist, and there's light over here, and light cannot fellowship with darkness. So, that's why some think that Second uh, uh, John may be a good cover letter for John then playing out that dualism that we read in First John. But it definitely works together. Like yes. in First John, you're getting this, like the Christian community is at risk. Like they don't have all of the gospels. They don't have the whole New Testament written down to, to talk about. So like, there's, there's risk here. Um, like it's at risk of being destroyed by this false teaching. So they need to, they need to remember the truth that they've been told. They need to live it out in action. And then second John is like, all right, so practically, don't join in the work of false teachers. Don't enable the spread of false teaching. And and specifically that that in this culture of Second John, it's like by being hospitable. But don't don't enable uh, the spread of false teaching. And I think for us to live well today, um, that's very much still relevant. Um, there are lots of religions that have um, adapted the story of Jesus and altered it and deleted certain parts and rewritten, rewritten other parts. And we need to be aware of how those uh, religions have deviated from the true story of Jesus. We need to be able to engage those. We need to know the story of Jesus so well that we can interact with those who would actually practically deny mm -hmm. the truth about Jesus. Um, yeah, and so that's, you know, again, responsible actor, life in the story. Verse eight includes watching yourself. And here's an imperative that John lays out before his readers, you know, and it's, you know, it's a it's an ongoing watching. Beware, be careful, watch out what's 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 going on around you, so you don't lose. And it's rather interesting the way the verse reads. Watch yourselves that you do not lose. And then notice the change in pronoun. What we have accomplished, and so it's kind of like John is speaking to this church and then putting it in the context of this larger community of what we've accomplished in in laying down this foundation about the teaching of Christ. We don't want to lose that. We don't want to, and you certainly don't want to miss out on the full reward that comes from being a good steward of that truth in the coming day of uh, eschatological blessing. And so that's really the call to action. What the call to action is be on the lookout, be Which, aware. Do you think the reward is having God, having the Son? Yeah. I mean, I think he doesn't, explicitly define what that no, full doesn't. reward is, but he goes on to say, if you abandon the teaching, you don't have God. You're right. So I wonder if part of it is yeah. like, like you want to hold tight to this right? because you, you don't want to end your life and not have God. Right. 
Right. Like that's what's really at stake. And there are all different kinds of views on like different sure. crowns and different sure. awards. And that's an episode for another day. <laughs> yes. But at the end of the day, it, it means nothing less than yes. like losing God. Right. Like what's at stake here is very right. important, the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's why, you know, that, so it's in that context, we can better understand the exhortations in 10 and 11, not to receive this person, not to allow that teaching to come into your, your close association, into your, your fellowship or your concern. And don't even give that person a greeting because doing such is going to be lending credence to them, affirming them. Yeah, we don't want to affirm false teaching in any way. And I think uh, to live well, that makes sense. That's not contradicting any other commands in the New Testament. And um, I think for me, like this letter makes more sense, understanding some of these pieces of what's the heresy like, um, what's kind of the situation of the church, uh, who's writing it, what's the Christology that he's, Mm -hmm. you know, reinforcing. Um, It all just kind of starts to make sense in that we need to hold the story of Jesus true, and we need to live in light of that, right. and that will look like something. Right. Yeah. And and for me as well, I uh, you know, amen to everything you just said as as well. I just am just awed by this connection of doctrine and practice. I know it's basic. I know it's it's simple. But uh, you know, a lot of times we like to hold, you know, we like to have this cognitive dissonance between, you know, okay, I I think and believe this, but I live a certain way, or that is contrary to that, and it just can't be done. And uh, I just love how truth transforms life. And uh, that's obviously one of the emphasis that we want to emphasize with our podcast, that as you read well, and you understand well, you can live well. And living well is abiding in the truth. Mm, That's well said. So, hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully uh, it's been encouraging. And next time we're together, uh, we're going to jump into 3 John. And uh, we'll see, you know, there's a little bit of irony there. We'll Mm -hmm. get into the other other end of the discussion. We want to encourage you to to jump into 3 John and start studying it. But uh, really looking forward to continuing our series here in the one chapter letters slash books of the (laughs) New Testament. Original music for this podcast was created by John Horton. Her graphics were designed by Virginia Stroud, and this episode was mixed and mastered by yours truly. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time here on the